Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, January 28th. I'm your reader, Jim Hill. Well, first, let's have a look at the weather for eastern Iowa. Today, in the Cedar Rapids, Iowa City area, uh, snow is likely. Well, I see it's coming down now uh, (laughs) in Iowa City. Um, The wind from the northeast at 15 to 25 miles per hour. Uh, We'll have a high of 20 and a low of 2. On Sunday, uh, it'll be mostly cloudy, the wind from the north at 10 to 20 miles per hour. We'll have a high of 12 and a low of minus 2. And then on Monday, partly cloudy, the wind from the northwest at 10 to 20 miles per hour. We'll have a high of just 5 and a low of minus 9. On Tuesday, it'll be partly cloudy, the wind from the northwest at 5 to 15 miles per hour. We'll have a high of 13 and a low of 0. The uh, normal high for this day is 28. The normal low is 11. The record high was 54 in 1914. The record low was minus 23 in 1902. The sun will set tonight at 516 It will rise tomorrow at 7.22. We have a little weather story today, this one from meteorologist Jan Ryherd. Snow and cold. Snow is likely throughout the day today, wrapping up tonight. Widespread totals of 2 to 5 inches are expected for much of Iowa, north of I-80, with a lighter end of that range along the I-80 to Highway 30 corridor. South of this, look for lesser totals of a trace to two inches. Some isolated higher totals in northern Iowa are possible where heavy snow bands set up. Winds gusting 20 to 30 miles per hour at times could lead to areas of blowing snow, especially in rural areas. Behind the system, Arctic air settles in Sunday into next week with highs in the single digits and teens. Overnight lows dip below zero with wind chills down to the negative teens throughout next week. Stay safe and stay warm. And again, that little weather story is from meteorologist Jan Ryherd. And now I will turn to our first story of the day from the front page of the Gazette um, we have a story that appears under the headline uh, significant undertaking Coralville's proposal to prepare to bury power lines The 2020 derecho caused the city to take a closer look at utility resilience. And this story is by Isabella Zaluska of the Gazette. When the derecho came through Iowa in August 2020, resident Mark Harris lost power for five days. He recalls there being a lot of variability about when power came came back on for residents in the city. His neighborhood was one of the last to be reconnected. Quote, We were one of the last houses in Coralville to get our power back on, said Harris, who has lived in his house on 12th Avenue since 1998. I think that points 
to me what a tremendous undertaking it is for them to try to get power back for a large area and how it's going to take time to do that. <clears throat> Quote, if bearing this all underground can make that less of a problem, he said, I'm all for it. The city of Coralville is exploring relocating overhead power and communication lines. Pardon the pause. <clears throat> Under, <laughs> let me start that sentence again. The city of Coralville is exploring relocating overhead power and communication lines underground to make the utility lines less vulnerable to severe storms and weather. The city estimates that the nearly $20 million project also would improve utility reliability for more than 9,000 Coralville residents. The project area includes the Mid-American Energy Service Area. This area is south of Interstate 80 and often referred to by residents as Old Coralville because of it because it's the original part of town. Residents who live in the part of the city north of I-80 are served by Lynn County REC and largely have their power lines underground already. The project is in the early stages as the city works to secure state and federal funding to help pay for the effort. The city is working with Muscatine-based engineering firm Stanley Consultants on the application, which was submitted this month. Harris said he is excited about the project. Other Coralville residents told the Gazette they are supportive and curious to learn more about construction impacts in their neighborhood. The city held its first in informational meeting about the project earlier this month. General details and a tentative schedule were shared, but specific design details and project development would occur once funding is secured. A decision on the city's application is anticipated in November. If all goes as the city hopes for, a design process could begin in December, with construction potentially starting as early as summer 2024. Construction would take about two years. The goal of the project is to develop a more resilient, reliable <clears throat> electric system. Eric Cam of Stanley Consultants said, The city has been aware of the challenges of overhead power lines, but the derecho brought the need for a solution to the forefront, said Ellen Habel, Deputy City Administrator. Residents lost power for four to five days, with internet service taking longer to come back online in many cases. The derecho impacted 95% of the Mid-American customers in Coralville, Mid-American spokesman Jeff Greenwood said. Within nine hours, Mid-American restored service to about half of those customers. The storm caused severe widespread damage across the state, which included downed overhead lines, utility poles, and electrical components. Greenwood said, <laughs> I'm going to start that sentence again. The storm caused severe widespread damage across the state, which included downed overhead lines, utility poles, and electrical components, Greenwood said. 
down trees and tree debris, damaged the company's system and had to be removed before repairs could start. After a storm <clears throat> that damages power lines, <coughs> utility companies must navigate streets and backyards covered in debris, which can delay repairs and service restoration. <clears throat> Habel said, quote, they have to try to navigate these yards that have fences or, <clears throat> or swing sets <clears throat> or big trees or landscaping, and trying to get to those backyards to do the, the repairs can be really tricky. It just makes the whole repair process longer. <clears throat> Habel said 60% to 75% of the city's <coughs> pardon me, total debris came from south of I-80, which is the project area. Habel said 60% amounts to about 6,500 cubic yards of compacted debris. <clears throat> Moving power lines, <coughs> pardon me, I, uh, I'm going to take a sip of coffee right now. Ah, scratchy throat. <clears throat> okay. Moving power lines underground also will increase safety following a severe storm, as well as be, e as be easier to maintain and give residents more use of their yards, Cam said. Longtime Coralville resident Dolores Slade, who has lived in her home on 13th Avenue since 1960, fully supports the project and addressing the overhead lines. Slade and her late husband, Russell, built the home and raised their family there. Slade's home wasn't directly impacted during the derecho, but she recalled a previous storm when a tree limb fell into her yard and took down her power lines. She was out of power for a week. Slade also has had issues with squirrels chewing through the power lines, which has caused the most damage. Habel said the nearly $20 million project is a significant undertaking. The city received $200,000 from the Federal Emergency Management Agency to develop the budget and project application, which was due this week. The city will hear later this year, likely sometime in November, if the funds were awarded. The city is seeking $13.72 million from FEMA's Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program and $1.96 million from Iowa Homeland Security and Emergency Management. The application to FEMA's program requires a local match, which the city expects would be $3.92 million. MidAmerican and the city are in discussions about cost sharing. Mid-Americans' financial contribution would go toward the city's share. The city will likely bond for the project, but that will depend on how much Mid-American contributes. The grant and the local matches and the local match are expected to cover all construction costs. Based on preliminary information, the proposed project would not impact customer rates in Coralville, Greenwood said. Abel said the city initially planned to pursue a small area for the project, but Iowa Homeland Security encouraged expanding to the entire Mid-American service area. Greenwood said there hasn't been a city 
in Mid-American Service Territory that has looked to pursue an underground conversation project, I guess that is, conversation project of this scale or through the same funding mechanisms that Coralville is looking at. Mid-American, however, has worked with cities on many smaller scale conversion projects, uh, Greenwood said. <clears throat> These projects often are associated with a public works project, such as water, sewer, or road improvements, he added. In Cedar Rapids, the city will consider moving power lines underground on a case-by-case -case basis. If the scope of a roadway project allows, said Brenna Falls, Assistant Public Works Director, Cedar Rapids is applying for the FEMA funding under the program for the city's E Avenue Detention Basin Expansion Project, said Ben Worrell, the city's Sewer and Utilities Program Manager. <clears throat> Since the FEMA program is annual, Habel said Coralville could apply again next year if this application is unsuccessful. It's a project that would be difficult to pursue without grant assistance, she said. <coughs> Habel said, quote, we're really hopeful. We think it's a very deserving project and that there's a really good case for it. All right. Now I'll take another sip of coffee. All right. Let's see what else we have here. Um, well, I'm, I'm on the Iowa Today page of the Gazette, and uh, here we have this story, um, Mercy Expanding ER Services to Marion. New location in 2024 follows similar move in 2020 in Hiawatha. And the story is by Emily Anderson of the Gazette. Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids will open an emergency services center in Marion, next to the Mercy Care Marion Clinic there. The site will be at 3701 Cats Drive off 10th Avenue and is expected to open in 2024. <clears throat> in 2020, the hospital opened an emergency location in Hiawatha which was the first emergency department in Iowa available outside of a hospital, according to a news release from the hospital. In 2022, Genesis Hospitals opened a freestanding emergency department in Bettendorf, making the new Marion location announced this week the third of its kind in Iowa, according to Mark Ware, Director of Marketing and Communications for Mercy Medical. The off-site emergency department has proved successful in Hiawatha. It had more than 15,000 visits in 2022, a 52% increase from 2021, according to Ware. Hospital leadership expects the Marion location to perform similarly. Mercy has conducted extensive research and spent years planning for this addition. The hospital's <clears throat> main emergency department has seen a need for greater capacity, especially during the last flu season, according to the hospital. <clears throat> um, quote, healthcare is challenging. I'll start that again. 
Healthcare is challenging us to continue to think differently about how and where patients want to receive care. Uh, Dr. Timothy Quinn, Mercy's president and chief executive officer, said in a statement, This new emergency department location reflects our commitment to adjusting how we provide care based on what is best for the community. We're being responsive to what patients are telling us they want for health care services. The new location will be open 24-7 and offer on-site radiology and lab services. It will be staffed with, exi- with existing employees and new hires. Patients who come to the Hiawatha Emergency Department who need additional hospital care are transferred to Mercy's downtown location for free in partnership with ambulance services. The same process will be followed at the Marion location. All right. All right, let's see, what else do we have here? Well, also on the Iowa Today page, we have this story. University of Iowa launches new national flood prediction center. Iowa Flood Center still needs support from the state, director says. And this story is by Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. The University of Iowa is launching a new center focused on national flood prediction that will be funded with $21 million in federal money. The Center for Hydrologic Development in the University of Iowa College of Engineering is part of a new national consortium to improve flood prediction and water quality tracking across the country. The Cooperative Institute for Research to Operations in Hydrology, led by the University of Alabama and involving more than a dozen research universities, is funded with $360 million from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The University of Iowa's share is $21 million over five years with a likelihood of extension. The University of Iowa wanted to create a new center rather than piggybacking on the Iowa Flood Center to make clear the national funding is for national research and development, said Larry Weber, an engineering professor and director of the new center. Weber said, quote, we didn't want there to be any confusion among Iowa legislators that work with the Center for for Hydrologic Development uh, was going to replace the need for funding. The Iowa, boy, that's, (laughs) let me try that again. Weber said, quote, we didn't want there to be any confusion among Iowa legislators that work with the Center for Hydrologic Development was going to replace the need for funding the Iowa Flood Center. The Flood Center, created in uh, 2009 after widespread eastern Iowa flooding in 2008, is focused on the citizens of Iowa, Weber said. The funding for the Center for Hydrologic Development will not support those activities. The Iowa legislature in 2017 considered cutting funding to the flood center, but city and county leaders spoke up about the benefits of having localized flood maps to guide infrastructure development and to prepare for future emergencies. 
Some University of Iowa researchers may do work for both centers, Weber said. The programs also will share administration, outreach, and physical space in the C. Maxwell Stanley Hydraulics Lab on the banks of the Iowa River in Iowa, in Iowa City. Weber said, quote, It helps us to build more depth on our bench and increase the pipeline of students who could become members of the Flood Center or work for different flood-related programs. Uh, now, he, um, below, listed below are some of the ways University of Iowa researchers will support the National Consortium the University of Iowa reported in April. Uh, first, developing and operating real-time streamflow forecast models. Uh, second, developing and managing large sets of flood inundation maps. Third, sharing expertise in flood monitoring based on the flood center's network of more than 260 stream monitoring sensors placed in Iowa. Fourth, designing and operating a network of rainfall and soil moisture observations, as well as contributing expertise in radar remote sensing of rainfall. The University of Iowa will formally announce the new research center at 10 a.m. Wednesday at the Stanley Lab. Remarks will be made by Weber, Stephen Burian, Executive Director of the Cooperative and the Alabama Water Institute's Director of Science, and Witold Krajewski, a University of Iowa engineering professor and director of the Iowa Flood Center. Now I'll pause for another sip of coffee. All right. <clears throat> well, I will now turn to the Insight page of the Gazette, where first uh, we have this Gazette editorial, Urgency Needed on Cyber Attacks. State lawmakers are taking steps to address cybersecurity threats to government, including school districts and other local government entities. We hope they move with a sense of urgency. House Study Bill 15 would create a state cybersecurity unit that monitors incidents affecting state government and local government entities. The bill also requires those government entities to report cybersecurity issues within 10 days, providing information on when an attack is discovered, what agencies were notified, and what data was breached. We've already seen cybersecurity attacks hit three of the state's largest school districts. Last summer, the Cedar Rapids Community School District encountered a ransomware attack that allowed hackers to obtain personal data on present and past district employees. The district paid the ransom. Linmar's computer systems and phones also were disrupted in 2022. Earlier this month, the Des Moines School District experienced a ransomware attack. These incidents caused canceled classes and programs, shut down online learning, and had other disruptive effects. It's past time for the state to step forward to address government cybersecurity. Although setting up a unit to monitor attacks 
and reporting requirements is a good start, we'd like to see lawmakers use state resources to provide expertise to local governments on how to deal with the tax and limit the damage. We'd like to see state investments in local efforts to protect critical data and systems. Local governments that lack that kind of expertise and training are soft targets for attacks. We also urge lawmakers to include provisions in any cybersecurity bill that requires more public information about the nature of an attack, the damage caused, and ransomware paid. The public was given precious little information in the Linmar and Cedar Rapids incidents. Although we're not calling for technical details about an attack and response, we believe taxpayers should be told far more about the consequences and costs and how the government entity is working to avoid future incidents. Cyber attacks can happen at any time. That underscores the need for lawmakers to make swift state action to stop them a legislative priority. And again, that is the Gazette's editorial. And now I will drop down to the community letters uh, uh, section. And today there's just one letter. This from Joe, Joe Wells of Iowa City. GOP wants to privatize schools. The gift that the Republican legislature is giving the rich in Iowa in the form of paid tuition is an obvious choice to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. If you want to pay tuition, move to the East Coast where going to public schools is not a choice because funding has been decimated. If you want a good education for your kids, you have to pay and send them to private schools. The reason the GOP wants to drain the public school budget is to do what they did with Iowa's mental health facilities and Medicaid. Make them private. Look what they did to Medicaid and Mount Pleasant and Clarinda mental health facilities. They had years to improve or address the situations at those facilities. Instead, they did nothing. They closed them and privatized their services. Why employ Iowans to do these jobs when you can save money to, uh, to your friends? Pardon me, I'll start that again. Why employ Iowans to do these jobs when you can give the money to your friends in private corporations? Represent your friends in large corporations and make them richer. And let Iowans you are supposed to represent send their kids to unsupported poor schools and give tax money to private schools and support your rich friends. As every Iowa kid tries to climb the ladder of success and get ahead, there is a Republican stepping on their hands and kicking them in the face to keep them, de- to keep them down where they think they belong. And again, that letter is from Joel Wells of Iowa City. All right, let's see what else we have here. Uh, well, I think I will. 
You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, January 28th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now I will turn to today's obituaries. All right. Well, first we have uh, the short obituaries. Uh, from Blairstown, Mary N. Siefken, 101 years of age, died Friday, January 27th. Arrangements are with the Phillips Funeral Home. From Cedar Rapids, uh, Marlis Marie Floyd, 86, died Friday, January 27th. Arrangements are with the Tehen Funeral Home. From Chelsea, Magdalena E. Richard, or Rickard, 83, died Friday, January 27th. Arrangements are with the Hrebeck Newhouse Funeral Home of Belle Plaine. From Makokoda, <clears throat> Christopher Reistroffer, 57, died Wednesday, January 25th. Arrangements are with the Carson Celebration of Life Center. <clears throat> From Solon, Kiefer E. Swenka, 78, died Thursday, January 26th. Arrangements are with the Papik Cuba Funeral Home, east of Cedar Rapids. From Wakan, Betty V. Opfer, 89, died Thursday, January 26th. Arrangements are with the Martin Grau Funeral Home. <clears throat> now I'll drop down the page to the Longer notices. <clears throat> From Cedar Rapids, Bonnie Lee or Leah Sund, 79, of Cedar Rapids, died on January 26. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, Tuesday, January 31st, um, at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Inurnment will be at the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery at a future date. From Independence, Emily J. Gudenkauf, 27, of Independence, died peacefully on Thursday morning, January 26th, at the Buchanan County Health Center in Independence. Uh, there will be a mass of Christian burial at 10.30 a.m., Tuesday, January 31st, at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Monte, with the Reverend David Beckman officiating. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday at the Fawcett Schmidt's Funeral Home in Winthrop, and at the church for one hour before the service on Tuesday. There will be a parish scripture service at 7 p.m. Monday at the funeral home. Interment will be at St. Patrick Catholic Cemetery in Monte. Uh, from uh, Iowa City, Dr. William Stanford, a distinguished professor emeritus of radiology at the University of Iowa, passed away on January 24th at the age of 92. Uh, a memorial service will be held at a later date. 
from from Solon. Elaine Vivian Willis, the daughter... No, pardon me. (laughs) Elaine Vivian Willis uh, passed away on Wednesday, January 25th at her home. A visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel Stateroom on Saturday, February 4th from 10 a.m. until service time at 11.30 a.m. with Pastor Brooks Stimson officiating. And uh, next, uh, from Jefferson City, Missouri, James, also known as Jim Gordon Arneal, Jr., 65, formerly of Robbins, uh, Iowa, passed away Friday, January 20th, at St. Mary's Hospital in Jefferson City, Missouri, where he resided <coughs> in retirement. Uh, Jim will be will lay will be laid to final rest with his parents at Port Hudson National Cemetery in Zachary, Louisiana. A celebration of life for Jim will be held at a later date in Iowa. From Cedar Rapids, Joanne Unkrich, that's spelled U-N-K-R-I-C-H, 86 of Cedar Rapids passed away on Tuesday, January 24th at Mercy Hallmer. Uh, <clears throat> memorial service will be at noon on Monday, January 30th with visitation beginning one hour prior to service at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, 2900 42nd Street Northeast. Um, Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services of Cedar Rapids is caring for the family. From Anamosa, Lucille R. Homan, 97, of Anamosa, passed away on January 24th at the Anamosa Care Center. Her family has granted her wishes for of a cremation. A graveside service will be held at a later date at Mayflower Cemetery in Oxford Junction. Dawson Funeral Services of Oxford Junction is caring for her family. And finally, from Cedar Rapids, Richard, also known as Dick Lewis Woods, 82, of Cedar Rapids, um, passed away on Friday, January 27th. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, January 31st, at Veritas Church, with visitation preceding from 9 to 11 a.m. and officiated by George Farber. Lunch will be served at Veritas Church following the memorial service. Tehan Funeral Home is serving the family. All right. Now I will pause uh, and have a sip of coffee. All right. Now I will turn to the turn to the sports page of the Gazette. Let's see. There we are. Too many pages (laughs) to keep straight here. All right. 
Well, there is a, a big story on girls' high school wrestling. Uh, and this story um, appears under the headline, Size Matters Not. Smaller East Buchanan squad proves it can wrestle with the big girls. And the story is by K.J. Pilcher of the Gazette. Three years ago, East Buchanan had more girls coaches than wrestlers. Keeley Carley was the lone female out for wrestling, while Dan Stiefel and her older sister, Kendra, mentored her. She had company, pardon me, she has company these days as one of 11 Buccaneers competing in inaugural Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union postseason. Even more impressive, those 11 wrestlers have elevated the small school of just 147 students in 9th through 11th grades in 2021-22 to the same plane as schools more than four times its size. Quote, for us, it's almost quality over quantity, uh, Carley said. We might have a small school, but we have some powerhouses on the team. They are willing to take any match head-on and do what we do best. East Buchanan advanced six to the finals at the Region 6 tournament Friday at Allied Energy Powerhouse. The six finalists were automatic qualifiers for the first IGHSAU state tournament, uh, February 2nd and 3rd at Extreme Arena in Carlville. Sorry for the delay, but oh, there's Just search around for the rest of the story. <clears throat> All right, here it is. Quote, <clears throat> I knew it was going to be tough, Stiefel said. Uh, the girls just fought. The girls just fought. They have done very well. As for the tiny school competing with and beating schools with much larger enrollments, well, that's in large part due to the efforts of the wrestlers. Uh, Staple said, quote, it's just a lot of hard work and a lot of off-season work. They work harder than anyone I know. It's a great team. They all help each other. I couldn't ask for a better team. <clears throat> East Buchanan's Destiny Crum at 130, Miley Waltz at 135, 140-pounder Andalyn Kabalka, Carley at 155, Brooklyn Graham at 170, and 190-pounder Allison Crum all reached the finals and advanced along with third place 105-pounder 105-pounder Valeria Torres. The significance of being in the historic field isn't lost on the competition. Quote, I'm kind of overwhelmed because it's the first sanctioned tournament where we had to qualify for state, said Allison Crum, who pinned her way to the 190-pound final. I'm just happy that I made it. Carley secured her berth, pinning her way to the title against Iowa City West's top-seeded Janelle Avila. Carley has placed in the last three Iowa Wrestling Coaches and Officials Association Girls State Tournaments, earning medals in each appearance with a runner-up finish in 2021. 
It's huge, Carly said. It's part of girls' wrestling history. I think it's crazy to be one of the people going to the first sanctioned girls' wrestling state tournament. The team was easy to spot with a mob of blue and red warm-ups in the corner and Matt's side teammates as they stockpiled wins. Camaraderie and unity have contributed to the Buccaneers' success. Carly said, quote, we have a really good dynamic. We're always there to support each other, win or lose. We're super close to one another. That comes from having a small team and wanting, and wanting success for each other. Cedar Rapids Prairies, Cedar Rapids Prairies, Maya Rausch became the first Metro wrestler to earn a berth to the IGH SAU State Tournament, beating Iowa City Liberties uh, Taylor Cavanth in the 100-pound semifinals. She edged Waverly Shell Rock's Amber Hoth in the championship. Bree Swenson was one of three Vinton Shellsburg finalists. She claimed the 110-pound title with a 4-0 decision over West Branch's Emerson Thomas in the finals. Solon's McKenna Rogers beats, pardon me, won a Waymacked title Monday and added a regional title to her haul. She pinned Waverly Shellrock's Macy Teat for the 105-pound crown and advanced. In Region 5, which ran simultaneously, the Linmar duo of Kate Seary, 110 pounds, and Ellie Jelenic, Jelenic, 120, won titles. Seary topped Waco's Riley Rice, 14-9 in the final. Jelenic opened with two falls, beat Davenport's Jalen Daly, 3-1 in the semifinals before collecting a medical forfeit for the title. West Liberty's Sylvia Garcia Vasquez claimed the 115-pound title in Region 5. She pinned Bentendorf's Lauren Regalia in just 38 seconds in the championship. She pinned all three opponents in the first period, improving to 28-5. and five. Cedar Rapids was just one of four regional titles, joining Luther College in Decorah, Iowa Event Center, in Des Moines and Tyson Events Center in Sioux City. Tournament officials announced 1,307 total wrestlers competed in the eight state qualifiers. The two tournaments in Cedar Rapids led the way with 360 entrants. Des Moines was next with 343. Decora had 309 wrestlers, 14 more than Sioux City. All right, I will pause here for a, another sip of coffee. All right, let's see what else we have. Well, the back page. The back page of today's Gazette has the Dear Abby column, which I have in front of me now. And... Um, this column appears under the title Friend Fears <coughs> Friend Fears <coughs> House Rules Might Affect Planned Visit. Dear Abby, I have known Gigi since second grade. Shortly after our first child was born, she started living with her boyfriend. Soon after they began dating. Gigi 
<clears throat> asked, pardon me, soon after they began dating, uh, let me start that again. Soon after they began dating, Gigi asked about coming to visit, and I agreed, but said they would need to sleep in separate rooms at my house. She said yes, and they weren't able to come. That was five years ago. She recently asked about coming out, and we set a date. Neither of us mentioned the sleeping arrangements, but I feel maybe I need to clarify again. I do not judge her, but I have made a decision that in my home, I should never have to feel uncomfortable. Their sharing the same room would make me uncomfortable. During a conversation five years ago, I told Gigi that if sleeping separately made them uncomfortable, we could see each other during the day, and they could arrange to stay in a hotel or another friend's home. She hasn't mentioned her plans this time around, but right now it sounds like they intend to stay here. What should I do? And this is signed, House Rules in Utah. Dear Rules, because Gigi and her boyfriend uh, sharing a bedroom in your house would still make you uncomfortable, call her and explain uh, that although they are welcome, your feelings on the subject of sleeping arrangements haven't changed. This is not a discussion you should have upon their arrival. <clears throat> right. And that is the Dear Abby call for the day. All right. Let's see what else we have. Well, I, uh, I'm on the, um, I'm at the living page of the Gazette, and we have a big story uh, and a big picture to accompany it. Um, the title of the story is Faithful Convert. Former Eastern Iowa meteorologist, journalist, turns church into Airbnb. And this story is by Elijah Decius of the Gazette. Scales Mound, Illinois. As the daughter of a line of Presbyterian ministers, Carolyn Whetstone spent half of her day at the church next to the manses her family lived in. So as the former Iowa broadcast journalist enters her, enters her golden years with longtime Iowa TV meteorologist Terry, Terry Swales, it made sense for them to retire in church too. Quote, Terry and I have never lived conventional lives, Whetstone said. The last thing I was going to do was live in a conventional house. That's why the couple bought the 1894 church sight unseen after coming across the online property listing in 2021. Now, over two years later, their eventual dream retirement home is on the Airbnb market to help repay the nearly $400,000 renovation investment. After long careers covering Eastern Iowa and Western Illinois as TV personalities and authors, Galena was the only location the couple could agree on for retirement. Swales, an Iowa City native, spent a long career covering Waterloo and the Quad Cities before finishing at KGAN and KFXA in Cedar Rapids. Whetstone served in broadcast journalism for 20 years, including time at KCCI in Des Moines, 
KQWC in the Quad Cities, and WHBF in Rock Island. For now, they live in East Dubuque, across East Dubuque, Illinois, across the river from Iowa, and just a few minutes from historic Galena. Uh, quote, We've always had an affinity for Galena. This has been our home away from home, Swale said. After purchasing the former Council Hill United Methodist Church, the real work started with renovating a church to become a home. As renovation estimates of $200,000 nearly doubled with pandemic cost spikes, the couple had to consider how to make it an investment others could enjoy living in too. Uh, quote, originally we were drawn to the structure just the way uh, how, how they constructed churches back then and how stately this thing was sitting on a hill, Swale said. But then you come in and you feel all the emotions that have gone into this place over the years. People dying, people getting married, family events. With a transformation, they hope the church, long an icon in rural Joe Davies County, can continue to maintain a sustainable presence, giving those feelings a new life long after worship services ceased in 1995. Throughout the home church staples, I'm going to start that again. Throughout the home, church staples have been restored and smartly reincorporated into a fresh modernization that doesn't neglect its roots. Wrought iron gates are now pieces of art. Photos from historical archives complement the walls and stained glass windows gave the eyes a reason to wander. The former sanctuary now is home to a large open concept living and dining room that maintains its warmth despite vaulted ceilings over 20 feet tall. In the main area, the former organ has been repurposed into a bar cart. Original lights illuminate the overhead space and oversized doors lead to a patio overlooking rolling hills of farmland. <clears throat> a quote, on Sundays my brother and I would get on our bellies and scoot underneath the pews looking for money. I felt very comfortable in a church. It feels like home to me, Whetstone said. So when you incorporate all these artifacts that were part of the original church, that just is an extension of what I consider my house. In doing so, the couple has managed to transform signs of reverence in the 129-year-old building, saving them from irrelevance. <clears throat> uh, Swale said, quote, The big thing for us was to watch the transformation unfold and to know this church built in 1894 still is here. I think it's about the journey. This place has seen some things and it's been through amazing revelations. Two smaller bedrooms on the main floor are accented with restored pieces of church history, stained glass windows and a shared central bathroom. One of three that feature upscale finishes and tile patterns compatible with the church's original aesthetic. Upstairs, in a new ward of the home, thanks to 40% more square footage, 
The primary bedroom suite is closed off by grand folding doors, relocated from the sanctuary where the main floor's patio doors now stand. The largest bedroom in the home features its own private patio and connecting bathroom. Across the hallway, original wood adds a rustic paneling to the staircase wall. Around the corner, guests can relax in a church pew on an interior balcony offering a bird's eye view of the living area and kitchen. With three bedrooms, three full bathrooms, and two sofa beds, the 2,500-square-foot house comfortably sleeps 10 people, ideal for larger groups hitting the slopes or exploring nearby historic Galena for a weekend. After finishing renovations late last year, the home is now available to rent. And if you feel so inclined, uh, ring in pardon me, ring the original church bell by pulling the rope in the foyer of the church bell tower on your way in or out. Uh, quote, the uh, neighbors say they don't mind. Ring away, former owner Bever Beverly Stabenow told the Monroe, Wisconsin Times in a 1998 article. Built in 1894, the Council Hills United Methodist, United Methodist Church was a robust force in its community, first as a place of worship and later as a wedding chapel. In 1832, Chief Blackhawk signed a peace treaty just a few feet away from the church's property with Galena citizens to halt attacks between Native American warriors and local residents. That site, the Branton Tavern, still stands directly across from the church. Uh, Whetstone said, quote, This is a big part of Galena's history. We tried to find photographs and stories and put them up. Early settlers in the area included miners and their families. Council Hill got its name in remembrance of Chief Blackhawk, who held council meetings there near the end of the Blackhawk War. When the church was built by Roland Smart, it boasted handcrafted woodwork, a bell tower, and the same three round stained glass windows that remain today. In 1998, three years after the church ceased worship services, Larry and Beverly Stabenow transformed the building into the little white church on the hill. Uh, so, into the little white church on the hill celebration chapel with local artist Charles Berryman. For most of the following two decades, couples continued to marry there. After both of the Stabenows died, Swales and Whetstone purchased the building from their trust for $63,000 in 2021. Ah, nice story. All right, let's see what else we have here. <clears throat> Well, we have some things to do today in the uh, in the Eastern Iowa area. Uh, under Family Friendly, Steam Saturday. Each participant will be given a piece of an oversized community puzzle and will have the chance to color it. When complete, all the pieces together will form the best puzzle ever. And this is uh, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., 
today at the New Bow City Market, 1100 Third Street, Southeast in Cedar Rapids, and there's no charge for that. <clears throat> Under Educational, uh, Girls in STEM Workshop, Fantastic Fossils, for girls in 4th to 8th grade. Young paleontologists will investigate how fossils are formed. After the activity, a pasta lunch, pasta lunch and dessert will be held. Registration required at uh, <coughs> this website, www.ely.iowa.us. And that will be from noon to 1.30 today at the Ely Public Library, 4195 Dow Street in Ely. No, and there's no charge for that. Under food and drink, Coralville Burrfest. Sample and purchase craft beers showcased by breweries from across the Midwest. And that will be from noon to 4 p.m. Uh, today uh, at the Hyatt Regency in Coralville, and the Coralville Hotel and Conference Center, 300 East 9th Street in Coralville. And the cost for that event is 50 to $65. Under theater, The Wish. In The Wish, two performers will lead volunteer audience members through a group reading of this informative and funny collection of scenes focused on reproductive rights. And that will be at 11, at 7.30 p.m. Uh, this evening at Mirror Box Theater, 1200 Ellis Boulevard in Northwest in Cedar Rapids. And the cost of the event is $20. Under theater, a Walk in the Woods. Two, superpower, two superpowers, I'll start that again, two superpower arms negotiators in the 1980s go on a series of nature walks as they try to solve nuclear proliferation and prevent the next great conflict, a story of the past now eerily prescient. And that will be at 7.30 p.m. this evening at the Riverside Theater, 119 East College Street in Iowa City, and the cost uh, is $15 to $35. And finally, under music, <clears throat> Mania, the ABBA tribute. This tribute show tours the world bringing the music of the Swedish supergroup to their millions of fans, old and new. And that will be at, at 7.30 p.m. No, no, pardon me, 7 p.m at the Paramount Theater, 123 Third Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. The cost, uh, price of admission, 30 to $50. All right. <clears throat> and that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, January 28th. I'm your reader, Jim Hill. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.